It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Kyle Krabs here, host of Locked On NFL Scouting. Join Joe Marino and me every day as we provide position-by-position analysis of the upcoming NFL Draft. Check out the Locked On NFL Scouting podcast with the Draft Dudes on YouTube or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You are Locked On 49ers, your daily San Francisco 49ers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On 49ers, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Brian Peacock, your host, with you once again. It's a Monday episode of the show. Uh, today, we're going to get into one mailbag question in particular that I've been meaning to to get to, uh, which was specifically about comps and players to comp the 49ers draft picks with NFL current or former NFL players that might be you know best case, worst case scenario uh, for the current 2018 49ers draft pick. So I'm going to get into some of that stuff. Uh, but first, got to talk about Reuben Foster and the bizarre scene that went down in the courthouse in Santa Clara County on Thursday. And Alyssa Ennis, Reuben Foster's ex-girlfriend, recanting just about everything that she first accused Reuben Foster of. So those charges are teetering, and we'll find out more about that on Wednesday. So we're going to get into some of that stuff also here in just a a moment. I do want to remind everybody to subscribe, rate, review the show. We're on iTunes, we're on Spotify, we're on Google Play, uh, iHeartRadio. You can find this podcast just about everywhere. If there's a place you can't find the podcast, please let me know. I want to hear about it. If you want to get involved in any mailbag segments that we do here on the show or just say hi, hit me up on Twitter at BDPeacock or email the show, LockedOn49ers at Gmail. If you would like to be a sponsor of LockedOn49ers or any of the podcasts on the Locked On Podcast Network, Email me, LockedOn49ers at gmail.com. Reuben Foster, it, it might not be long before Reuben Foster's back at 49ers practice based on everything we heard from the testimony that his accuser and ex-girlfriend Alyssa Ennis said at the preliminary hearing on Thursday. Um, even going as far as implementing herself in felonious activities Pretty unbelievable testimony. That that was nuts. Even um, a guy that I have some quotes from here, Stephen Clark, who's a former attorney, uh, I think a former assistant DA. He said it was one of the craziest uh, testimony he's ever seen, too. Uh, unbelievable. So obviously she's a, a very good liar if she was either lying originally or lying in this in the newest testimony because, you know, she was lying one of those times and she's very believable. You know, she even broke down on the stand on Thursday when she was talking about some of the things that she had lied about. Oh, let's see. Let's start. Where do we start here? Let's go to uh, it's so crazy. This whole story is is really nuts, man. And Reuben Foster, one of the big things, one of the big pieces of evidence. I mean, so if she the D.A. thought that they still had a case, right, even when she recanted, apparently two days after the original allegations, they went forward with it and they even like paraded it out in public and was like, we're going to make an example of this player. And man, when you hear the evidence, it was like, they knew this evidence. They knew all this stuff that she was going to say. So how did it get this far? I'd be very surprised if these charges don't get dropped by what she said. So let's go back to some of her testimony here. And uh, I'm going to go with some of this. Cam Inman did a very good job. David Lombardi of The Athletic was all over it. 
friend of the show, Matt Barrows, of course, who also had an article interviewing Stephen Clark, who is an attorney who has some good perspective on courtroom stuff. Uh, so I'm going to go through some of these articles and some of the tweets that people were talking about uh, that were in the courtroom relaying this information. The overlying theme from Ennis was, quote, I was pissed. I wanted to end him. She also said it was about money. And to further the story about money, a tweet from David Lombardi said that she testified that she stole two Rolexes from Reuben Foster and $8,000. And then at one point she said, quote, uh, it was more than $8,000. How exactly did Ennis steal this money? I stole his routing and account numbers when he went to jail. I mean, that's a serious crime right there. That is nuts. Um, so not only did she lie, so giving false testimony, uh, false police report and all, and all that, she, she admitted to straight up stealing this guy's money, wire fraud. It, this is crazy. So she's got to, aside from going and seeking counseling and seeking help for this, um, one of the big bombshells she said when she said she was going to go seek help was that she had falsely accused another man in 2011 of this and actually did jail time because of falsely accusing somebody of it. Um, I, I think if this does go to jury trial, I'm not sure if they can use that as evidence. That might be something that gets thrown out because, you know, because she falsely accused somebody before doesn't mean that she falsely accused him this time. Uh, I'm obviously not a lawyer, so I don't know. I'm not hundred percent sure on that, but man, it, it was pretty nuts. Some of the stuff and it was from the tweets I saw and the reports I saw, it was pretty damning for the prosecution and a very good day for Ruben Foster. And also the fact that the judge said that she was going to take a week to think about this. If she was going to, you know, kill this thing right away, uh, Nina Clippin, I believe Nina L Clippin and the judge might squash the whole thing herself. So the, the DA still has to think they can go forward. The judge has to think that this can go forward. Um, again, from David Lombardi, he said in a tweet, one issue at play that's critical to remember, the burden of proof to proceed from a preliminary hearing is not big at all. Uh, Bentley, who was the defense attorney for Reuben Foster, acknowledged this. He said it's very rare to have a case dismissed at this stage, but the fact that Judge Clippin is, is taking a week to deliberate is a very good thing for Reuben Foster. She testified that she told Foster in text messages, your career is over, you're going after him, you're going after the Niners, and you're going after his coaches. She said, yes, sir. She said, I'm sorry, I really am. And that's when she started crying. She said, I'd like to apologize to everyone. So she was just wilding out if this is accurate testimony. Um, and she obviously needs some help because she's... I mean, this is crazy. Uh, so she knew she said that Ruben threw a dog. She said that Ruben broke uh, her phone or multiple phones. Um, she said that she was that he hit her eight to ten times, and then and then her recanting of it said that it was all about this fight that happened the night before, which is apparently the reason why Ruben Foster wanted to break up with her in the first place. Luckily for Ruben Foster, that there was video of that fight that she got into from a road rage incident the night before in San Francisco. There was no dog throwing after all. And that it was actually her that threw the phone at him. And that they weren't her phones anyways. They was Reuben Foster's phones. So, um, yeah, it, it was it was pretty nuts. And uh, I would honestly, just from what I heard, I'd be surprised if if the if it goes to trial at all and if the cases aren't dismissed. And if those cases, if the domestic violence case is dismissed, I think Reuben immediately goes back to practice. And then it could also affect the gun charge. It could be, be reduced to a misdemeanor. And in that case, it could be 
you know, just a fine and he has to disassemble the gun or something like that, community service type stuff. Um, so that would be no longer a felony either, possibly. I mean, it's one possible outcome from what I understand. So everything that happened on Thursday all points to very good for Reuben Foster. And above all, the, the number one thing is, thank God he didn't hit a woman. I mean, that's that was that's what this all is about. The pot thing, the gun thing, stupid, yes, forgivable, yes, move on from these things. Uh, Reuben, tighten it up, clean that up, fix that. If there was no domestic violence, that's that's so huge, it's so massive for Reuben Foster's career, and uh, that's really what all this hinges upon. And right now, it's looking very good for him. And um, I, I really think the 49ers had a lot of this information, and so I think you saw that's why John Lynch say, you know, we're going to let due process play out. They they had to have a very good idea that this is this is how this was going to go and that they had all this information. I'm sure Ruben showed her, showed them all, all the texts and, and they had all that information. So thankfully that is, you know, if her testimony was accurate and hopefully it was, Ruben Foster did not hit her and that's all very good. And there's a good chance that Ruben Foster could be playing for the 49ers very soon. I want to go real quick to, I think the biggest thing, well, first of all, that that DA continued on with this case with the evidence being so shoddy and, that that kind of blows my mind. Like, what are they doing? And not, not only just continuing with it and, and wasting taxpayer money on the preliminary hearing, if they knew it was going to go down like this and they knew that this is what her testimony was going to be and they had all this evidence and stuff. But then the Los Gatos PD, um, Bentley, who is, again, Reuben Foster's lawyer, part of the defense team, asked one of the Los Gatos detectives under cross-examination. The detective said that they never followed up on Ennis's claim that she fought another woman, and this all came out right. It was it was like two days later that she found out that they had this, or two days later that she told him all about this, that it was all lies. She was trying to backtrack on everything and said that the fight didn't even happen with Reuben Foster. It happened the night before, and they didn't even follow up on it. I mean, it's really embarrassingly bad job by the Los Gatos PD and the investigation and the DA to continue with a case if this is all the facts that they had. And it's a good lesson to, you know, slow down, make sure the facts are heard and make sure someone who's accused of something is guilty. But then it also sets back, you know, other women that accuse people. And then the people are now going to jump to the side of the player or, you know, whoever. Be like, oh, of course, here's another one. She's falsely accusing this dude. So uh, it's it's bad for women. It's bad for people who are abused. Um, it's bad for, obviously, Reuben Foster who was falsely accused in this case and bad look for the community and just to take this all out in public when it's something that might just get thrown out. Uh, it's, it seems like a really bad call by the DA and a bad job of them finding evidence about the whole story. Get the whole story together before you go to preliminary hearings. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. Is this, is this how it always works? I don't know. I, I don't spend enough time in courtrooms, I guess, to know maybe this is just standard procedure because their whole basis of their whole case was her accusing him. It was all her word. And then that's been completely wiped out by her latest testimony. And it was almost immediately that she backtracked on all that and recanted her original story. So again, I'm not a lawyer. I I, I don't know exactly how this is going to go, but from just hearing that testimony, and I haven't heard a lot of, you know, I haven't been in a lot of courtrooms and heard a lot of testimony, but that was, it seemed like a nutty one. And uh, judging by people who are experts in this, like Stephen Clark, who was a former assistant DA and, and an attorney himself. He said it's going to give both sides an opportunity to discuss the case and it's possible they could reach some type of resolution. I don't know what that would be or what that would look like. I'm guessing Reuben Foster is not going to agree to any kind of plea if he didn't do anything. 
um, unless it has to do with the gun charge. Clark also said it's not a trial. It's a preview for what's to come. And I just don't see this case being one in which the DA could convince a jury beyond a reasonable doubt as to the guilt of Mr. Foster as to the domestic violence count. If you're looking for the most comprehensive NFL draft coverage this offseason, look no further than the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast. Join the draft dudes, Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino, as they go position by position through the NFL free agent class and into the star-studded crop of college stars who will be selected in the 2024 NFL Draft. If you want to know who your favorite NFL team should be adding to its roster, you need to check out Locked On NFL Scouting. Available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Um, As to why it did go to the preliminary hearing, Clark said that, quote, the onus is on them and they'd rather learn what Ennis would say now than at trial. I'm not surprised they called her. I think they wanted to see what would happen and frankly... They wanted to put her through that. If it truly was made up and they were pretty rough on her and obviously the defense was pretty rough on her too, I see it as the right thing to do. So that's why maybe they went that far is because her um, her changing her story is not enough. They want to put her on the stand, put her under oath and see how a cross-examination would go in that case. So I guess that's why the preliminary hearing maybe had to happen. Makes a little bit more sense in that context. But uh, the last thing that Clark said, which is, uh, kind of sticks with me for someone who's been doing this, and he's the professional, been doing this a long time, and it's how it came off to me too, is that, quote, I don't know that I've ever seen anything quite like what I saw in that courtroom in terms of just the complete meltdown and the admission of lying, end quote. That's that. Still up in the air. We'll find out Wednesday. Judge Nona Clippin delayed her ruling until the 23rd, and so we will find out uh, if this case will continue then. Um, just Judging by everything we've learned and, and hearing from professionals and hearing from beat writers and people that were in the courtroom, I got to guess that the domestic violent part of the charges are going to be dropped and then we'll see what happens with that gun charge. But there's still a chance it could go to trial. So this is definitely not over, but the, the last week or so has definitely been one of Reuben Foster's better weeks in the past couple of months. Absolutely. And uh, there's a chance he's back at practice very soon, maybe at the end of this week, he's back at the facility and uh, getting back involved with football activities. Enough of that stuff. Let's let the judge do her thing. We'll find out on Wednesday what's going to happen with Reuben Foster or the next step there with that saga. Um, I want to go back to the last couple of mailbags here in an email from Sulman. And uh, this is a good one. And I'm going to finish the episode with this. He said, can you go through each pick? of the 49ers 2018 draft class and give them a best case comparison and a worst case comparison based on what you've seen. Uh, this was inspired by your conversation with Brad Kelly, where he compared Pettis to Macklin. I think Pettis worst case scenario is Dante Hall. Uh, thank you very much for that question. Solman. So I'm going to give him some of that. I don't have a perfect, you know, best case, worst case for every guy, but I do have some scenarios and some different comps here on different levels for some of these players. So um, let's start with, the 49ers first round draft pick in Mike McGlinchey. Uh, and this was actually for a first round pick was surprisingly hard because usually for the top guys, you really have some good comps and, and you, you, a lot of players that are similar or, or player or career paths that you could envision for a player with Mike McGlinchey. It's a little bit harder. Um, I think uh, Lance Zerline NFL.com is pretty good with his comps. He had Jared Valdir as one, uh, which I like. And uh, that's kind of like, you know, the the ranking I had for Mike McGlinchey before the draft was sort of, you know, 
a good, you know, a solid starting tackle, but not something someone I was, you know, uh, jumping out of my chair to go draft. Um, and Jared Vildier, you know, he, he had a good first four years with Oakland, but n- not good enough that they were worried about holding on to him and, and re-signing him. And so he didn't get a second contract with them, went to Arizona, and he was there for four years and signed a four-year something, $35 million contract with Arizona, then ended up now with the Denver Broncos. So uh, both teams, never he never got a second contract with either one of those teams. So solid career. He's been a starter, played a lot of left tackle, um, you know, but not an all pro player necessarily and not a player that, uh, that either one of the teams he's been on in the NFL wanted to continue to build around. So, um, you know, that's, that's not somebody that you're super excited about. Maybe in the top 10, you would maybe want a more impactful, uh, superstar sort of an offensive lineman, but Jared Valdir has been very good. I think a little bit closer comp for me, maybe would be Nate Solder, New England Patriots left tackle. Uh, he's been very good, and he's been a little bit better than Valdir throughout his career. I like that comp for him. Uh, another one is Taylor Luan. And when you look a little bit closer at Taylor Luan, I think his upside's higher than both Valdir and Nate Solder. Um, but what what really, the, the reason I would comp Taylor Luan to Mike McGlinchey is because of just the height, weight, speed, just his, his physical uh, measurements. Both guys were Six seven and you know a little over six seven, not quite six eight. Both guys I think were almost exactly three hundred eight, three hundred nine pounds, something like that. So height and weight are almost identical with those two players. Uh, athleticism too. Uh, I think twenty four and twenty seven bench press reps. I think Taylor Dewan might have ran a little bit better. I don't think Mike Lynch ran at all, but uh, I think with his jumps, he was like twenty seven inch vertical jump. Maybe Taylor Dewan was thirty inch vertical jump. So slightly more athletic, maybe testing wise. For Taylor Lewan, but Mike McGlinchey didn't go through full testing workouts as far as running and stuff like that. But very, very similar height, weight, speed guys, both very good long-term starters at the college level and uh, were drafted very high. So I, I think that's a pretty good comp for Mike McGlinchey. Obviously, Taylor Lewan's still a young player, so his career arc hasn't um, you know, taken full shape yet, so you don't know how that's going to end. Um, I know that a few people comped Mike McGlinchey to his former teammate and former Notre Dame left tackle, Ronnie Stanley, who basically he took his job uh, at Notre Dame at left tackle. Ronnie Stanley is a very different player though than McGlinchey. I think uh, Ronnie Stanley was more of your, your classic finesse, pass blocking, super long arms, left tackle, not as good as in the run game. McGlinchey sort of the flip side of that, better in the run game. And even though he has the length and athleticism to be a very good pass blocking tackle, although that was the place where he sort of um, sometimes struggled. And usually when Mike McGlinchey struggled, he was, he was pretty good most of the time. When he struggled, it was just a few snaps. And I think I might maybe, I mean, you know, compared to how the 49ers graded him, maybe I graded him too hard on just a few snaps where he just got beat very quickly and got beaten badly. Uh, by bad hand usage and by bad, you know, hand strength and not locking on to somebody and someone just swiped his hands out of the way and got an immediate sack. And I saw a few of those ugly plays and I was like, oh gosh, that's bad. Um, but it might be something that he can clean up. And besides that, he was a very good player and he was pro football focuses, number one graded run blocking tackle in college last year. So um, Mike McGlinchey, very different player than his former teammate, Ronnie Stanley. Taylor DeWan, I think, is a pretty good comp. Nate Solder also works, and so does Jared There's A lot of um, – and th- those are all fine players. Those are all – if he turns out on those levels, then he's he's fine. That Those those aren't busts. Um, but there's also – that's the flip side. Like half of these players are going to bust. Half of the first-round picks in the draft, you know, you have this vision what these guys are going to be. 
A lot of them aren't going to turn out that way, whether it's injuries or bad play or bad coaching, bad team, whatever, bad fit. Uh, a lot of things can happen in a guy's career. So uh, there's there's a chance, you know, flip a coin, there's a chance maybe he's worse than all of those comps we just gave him. But um, I, I kind of like some of those. Nate Solder, Taylor Lewan, that's the player you're kind of hoping Mike McGlinchey becomes. Let's go on to second round pick, Dante Pettis, wide receiver out of Washington. Um, again, let's go to Lance Zerline. His comp was TJ Hushmanzada, which I thought was an interesting one. I, that that works, I think, size-wise and production-wise. That's a fine number two wide receiver. And I think that's what that comp means to me is they're saying, look, this is a number two guy. He's not ever going to be a true number one wide receiver, but he can be a very uh, productive number two type of wide receiver. And I like that for him. I think Nelson Aguilar is a pretty good comp, someone that could play a little slot. Um, I think l- let's do let's let's start with the the low end for a comp. Dante Hall is what Solman said. How about Jacoby Jones? A little bit longer, linear type of a player. Uh, he did have fifty catches once or twice in his career, but mostly was that return man. But then kind of had some big plays on offensive. Well, uh, you know the Forty ers saw that in the Super Bowl against the Ravens. So Jacoby Jones might be a lower-end comp for Dante Pettis, someone who is a good returner, uh, isn't a huge, impactful player on offense, but has a couple seasons where he's pretty good, you know, maybe more of a number three, number four type of receiver for most of his career, but uh, plays a little number two role occasionally. Um, that would be the low end. Uh, Stephon Diggs is a player that was comp to him a lot. Jeremy Macklin, I like that one. How about this one for 49ers fans? How about John Taylor? Big-time return man, made some huge plays as a returner and was the number two to the best receiver of all time, the best football player maybe of all time in Jerry Rice. So that's what you're looking at. You're hoping for a dynamic number two receiver that can help you out in the return game. How about John Taylor for a comp for Dante Pettis? John Taylor had that crazy high cut. They're they're built differently. Uh, I mean, height-wise, they're pretty close. What, 6'1"? John Taylor was like 6'1", maybe 6'2". But... John Taylor has the longest legs I've ever seen. Like it went like legs, but armpits. That's how John Taylor was built. Let's move on to round number three and Mr. Fred Taylor. Uh, I think the Taylor or the uh, Fred Taylor, Fred Warner. I think the Fred Warner comps are pretty easy. Uh, to me, he's the exact center of Jaguars linebacker Telvin Smith and Seahawks linebacker KJ Wright. I think he's right in between them. Uh, he's he's bigger than Smith. He's smaller than Wright. Not quite as athletic as Smith, but a pretty good coverage guy. A little bit more athletic, I think, than KJ Wright. Uh, KJ Wright goes about 6'4", 245 or something like that. And Telvin Smith is only 215 pounds. He was like a, a, a beefed up safety coming out of college. So that's why he's such a good cover guy, too. He has that safety athleticism. They move him down the linebacker. Um, so Fred Warner, I, he, he's, I like those comps for him. They both play the same scheme the 49ers are going to play. They both play that weak side linebacker spot that I think Fred Warner could uh, plug right in at. Uh, he might play some middle linebacker as well. But, yeah, Telvin Smith, K.J. Wright, he, he's the combination of those two guys to me. Um, I couldn't really think of any good, like, low-end comps for Warner, someone who was, like, drafted day two that had all the athleticism and, and didn't pan out. I'm sure there's some guys I'm completely missing, but nobody really just jumped into mind. Uh, as a good low-end comp for Fred Warner. This is David Harrison of the Locked On Commanders podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Discover. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. 
Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Tarverius Moore. This was one of the more difficult comps for me because you see a lot of guys that go from corner and bulk up and play safety, but you don't see very many safety to cornerback conversions. You see some guy that kind of, you know, play a little bit of both maybe in college and then come to the pros and play a little bit of both. But to be a straight up safety only and then go to becoming a straight up corner only, that's a rare move unless he doesn't stick in corner and ends up staying at safety. But I'll give you a couple names. Let's stay with the scheme fit here. How about A.J. Bouye, who was a guy that didn't play a lot early in his career for the Texans. Uh, year one, he hardly played uh, and then developed in, into a very good starter and then got a big payday, moved over to the Jacksonville Jaguars, plays in the same scheme, obviously. So um, I don't think he ran a 4 3 2 Not many guys who did. Uh, my next comp ran almost close to that, though. Um, but A.J. Bouye, yeah. So uh, the comp here is that Tarveus Moore might not play a lot in his rookie year, but it's that potential. Maybe he becomes that superstar corner. That's what you're banking on. You're swinging for the fences here with Tarverius Moore. And A.J. Bouye was that guy. He wasn't drafted quite as high, I don't think. He was a day three pick, but you know, didn't he had to earn it. Didn't play a lot, was developmental as a rookie, then started playing more and more and became a, a star corner. How about this for a comp for Tarverius Moore? Shaquille Griffin, Shaquem Griffin's brother for the Seahawks. He goes about six feet tall, and he ran four threes, just like his brother did at the Combine. Uh, obviously plays the same scheme, bigger body cornerback. So uh, those those are a couple of comps there for Tarverius Moore. But I, there, there wasn't a single safety I could think of. Someone his profile is so weird. A college safety that ran four three two and then gets converted to cornerback. I mean, maybe someone out there could think of something, but I I have never heard of that ever. Which makes him unique and makes me uh, excited to watch that development. That's going to be an interesting career arc for Tarverius Moore. All right, let's move it on to day three. Kentavious Street. I've been a little bit hard on John Lynch for this pick. It was one of my least favorite picks in the draft, the Team ACL stuff. Uh, I know a lot of 49ers fans are still a little bit weary of the Trent Baalke era. Um, and so you're not going to like the comp. The comp I have for Kentavious Street is Tank Carradine. ACL project that is a big end. I think that's exactly what he is. So you hope that his career comes into focus quicker than Tank Carradine's did because he didn't start to look like a player until the new regime until last year. Uh, and then it was dinged up a little bit again. And then now he's gone. So you hope that before his four year rookie contract is up, he has a chance to get in there and develop. Uh, but year one is going to be a lost one for Contavious street due to an ACL injury. And actually what's funny is, Lance Zerline from NFL.com comped Kentavious Street to the 49ers' own Ronald Blair. So a couple of 49ers comps there for Kentavious Street. And as far as the low-end comp, um, that it could be a zero. You know, he, He's coming off an ACL. Maybe he never... Maybe he never recovers at all. Maybe he's never the same guy. Um, so there's a chance that, you know, anytime you draft an injured player... That's a significant injury. You don't know what the end result is going to be. So that's why I didn't like the pick, not because I hate Contavious Street, but I would want it more discount, more ACL discount for Street because I think need-wise and I think player-wise, he's going to be behind not only Ronald Blair, but he's going to be behind last year's first-round pick. He's going to be um, behind Eric Armstead 
next year who they picked up his option unless they trade him. So he's kind of lost on the depth chart, developmental project. It's, it's, it's hard. you got to put a guy on the shelf and wait. It's like you get a Christmas present, and you're like, oh, yeah, you can't play at this yet. Put it on the shelf next Christmas, then you can throw some batteries in it and see if it works. That's where we're at with Kentavious Street. Tink Caradine-ish start maybe to his career. We'll see how that turns out. DJ Reed, player I like, a player that the more I think about it, the more I like because he's the type of guy that you don't have to squint to see what he's going to be. You know what he's going to be. He's going to come in, compete. He's going to compete a little bit at free safety, at slot cornerback, um, and he's going to play some special teams for you, both probably on coverage and kick return. And I think that's a valuable player. It's the type of player that can make a team for you on day three, which I like. Um, How about Lardarius Webb, who's also... Slot corner, return man in the NFL. I think that's a pretty good comp for DJ Reed. If you want to go super high end, maybe LaMarcus Joyner even because of the safety cornerback thing. That's what LaMarcus Joyner does. He plays some free safety, plays some strong safety. He can play in the box a little bit because he's pretty stout and pretty physical. Um, Then he can cover the slot as well. So uh, if you're looking for a a high end comp for DJ Reed, uh, maybe LaMarcus Joyner if, if you're really allowing yourself to dream. And Joyner had a slow start. He didn't really take off until last season for the Rams. But I like the comp of... Lardarius Webb for DJ Reed. Let's move on to Marcel Harris. Uh, he's a very Jonathan Cyprian type strong safety, I would say. Uh, he gets the comp to, obviously, Cam Chancellor, the big-bodied strong safety in this scheme, but I don't think he's quite that. I think John Cyprian's a little bit closer, and Cyprian was a, a high second-round pick, so that's a, that's a uh, high-end comp for Marcel Harris, who's a sixth-rounder. How about a couple of late-round guys who turned out to have a pretty good career in the NFL? Kurt Coleman a late-round safety, and I'll give you a low-end comp for Marcel Harris. How about Curtis Taylor? If you're saying, who's Curtis Taylor? Uh, That's what I was saying. I went back and looked at some 49ers drafts when I was doing this because I wanted to see some uh, some of the names from some guys in the last few years. Curtis Taylor was a 49ers draft pick in 2009, a seventh-round strong safety out of LSU, and when I saw that name, I have to be honest with you guys, I 100% had no idea who Curtis Taylor was. I did not remember that player existing at all. I got a couple other good ones for you, though, coming up. Uh, Let's move on to round seven and Julian Taylor. Julian Taylor, seventh-round pick. How about Michael Bennett, who was undrafted completely for the Seahawks? And that's the the physical comp, that that bigger-bodied defensive end. Julian Taylor, very athletic. Uh, It was all about injuries for Julian Taylor. That's why he wasn't on the radar from Temple. So how about a couple of comps here for Julian Taylor? Well, Michael Bennett, that's a very high-end comp for someone who's a seventh-rounder, but Michael Bennett was undrafted. So that's what you're hoping for when you draft someone with big-time physical tools. You know, again, you're you're rolling the dice here on the injuries. A couple of those in this draft for the 49ers. Um, here's a couple names. How about Caleb Ramsey? Do you remember him? A 2014 draft pick. He didn't stick, didn't do anything for the 49ers, but a big-body defensive end. And then another one two years before that in the illustrious 2012 49ers draft, Cam Johnson, seventh-round pick, also didn't stick with the 49ers. And by the way, let's go over that 2000 round, that 2012 draft. Someone reminded me about it on Twitter. It was really the draft that made me wake up and be like, okay, I got to document what I would be doing during these drafts. So that's that's when next year the shadow draft started in 2013 because of drafts like this. In 2012, the infamous A.J. Jenkins draft, no longer in the league, I don't think. Uh, LaMichael James, I don't think he's in the league anymore. Joe Looney still kicking around. Uh, he was with the Cowboys last year. I don't think he really played at all, but he was still around at least in 2017. Darius Fleming, linebacker, uh, another one of Balky's 
Team ACL guys, one of the least popular because he's not, uh, I think it was early on in the ACL thing and people weren't really onto it yet, but Darius Fleming was one of those guys, had no career practically. Uh, Trent Robinson, similar story, defensive back in round six. Jason Slowey in round six as well, offensive lineman who did not stick, and then Cam Johnson who kicked around a couple teams uh, but did not stick with the 49ers in 2012. That was the 2012 draft. Uh, So if you want a low-end comp, there's your guy, Cam Johnson. Because when you draft a seventh round project defensive end, you know, some some, some of these guys aren't going to, he could be Michael Bennett, he could be Cam Johnson. That is a massive gap you just don't know with some of these late round picks. Let's move on to one of my favorite picks in the draft, a guy who was a friend of the show. Go back to last week's uh, Monday episode and listen to my interview with Mr. Richie James. He's explosive. He's going to be fun to watch. The super high end comp, if you want to give, if you want to allow yourself to dream. Antonio Brown, height, weight, speed. That's that's the type of player he is. Plays big. Love it. Uh, if you want something more accurate, probably, how about Aldrick Robinson? Again, height, weight, speed. Plays in the scheme under Shanahan. Uh, I think Richie James is going to be very much utilized in the way that Kyle Shanahan has used Aldrick Robinson on his offenses in the past. De'Anthony Thomas, speed demon. From the Chiefs, that is a player and former Oregon Duck. That's the player that Lance Zerline compared Richie James to. But I think De'Anthony Thomas, as far as like you know, pure speed, is faster than Richie James. But I don't think he has the technique. I don't think he has the receiving skills that Richie James has. That's why I like that Aldrick Robinson comp for Richie James. All right, that's going to do it. There's my comps. Yeah, some some super high ones and some low end ones and some... I'm trying to nail right in between there that I think are the sweet spot comps for some of the players the 49ers drafted in 2018. All right, that's going to do it. Be back tomorrow with Brad Motter. We're going to be talking Rams 49ers crossover. We're going to get into the NFC West here and find out what some of these teams did, get to know them a little bit better. I realized when we talked to Nick and had a mailbag question about NFC West teams and predicting records, he's like, yeah, I need to get, I need to, get to know these teams a little bit better before I start throwing records out there all willy-nilly. All right, talk to you guys then right here on Locked On 49ers. If you're looking for the most comprehensive NFL draft coverage this offseason, look no further than the Locked On NFL Scouting Podcast. Join the draft dudes, Kyle Krabs and Joe Marino, as they go position by position through the NFL free agent class and into the star-studded crop of college stars who will be selected in the 2024 NFL Draft. If you want to know who your favorite NFL team should be adding to its roster, you need to check out Locked On NFL Scouting. Available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Is your team eliminated from the playoffs and in need of reinforcements? Maybe it's time for a rebuild, or maybe they're just a player or two away from taking home the Lombardi Trophy. Either way, join Keith Sanchez and Damian Parson for Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. They'll tell you which college football stars your team will be taking in the 2024 NFL Draft. Check out Mock Draft Monday on the Locked On NFL Draft Podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.